look at verses 13 to 18 this morning of James 5. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1013. Thanks, Ben, for leading us last four weeks on God's story for the nations. I just want you all to know that that story didn't end with last week's sermon. Okay? The passage before us has everything to do with God's story for the nations. It shows us what happens when a people among the nations embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the gospel spreads among all people groups, as as we uh, make disciples of all nations, God saves people. He's He saves them. He makes them new creations by His grace. And when His gospel makes people new, they start acting new. Their new love for God inside produces good deeds toward their neighbors outside. And and when God adds to this, this number of people He's saving, you get this little community of people. We call it the local church. You guys. And these churches are living testimonies that the gospel really does break the power of sin. And it turns rebels into righteous ones. One fruit of this gospel transformation is a people with a new speech. The nations are full of sinful speech. Rash responses, favoritism... Slander, condescending remarks, cursing of others, grumbling and complaining, cynicism. All of us were were once part of this world full of, of sinful speech. But once the gospel takes root in a people, behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Part of that newness is a new heart that produces new Speech that glorifies God and serves our neighbor. What we've seen in our letter so far is something grievous. Uh, the church, the churches that James is writing to aren't reflecting that newness of speech very well. They, they've given in to the old sinful flesh and they need correction. Most of the correction has already taken place in our letter. James is now moving to a few constructive examples of what righteous speech looks like in the church. And we might summarize it like this. The gospel creates a people whose words express adoration to God, dependence on God, and humility toward one another. The gospel creates... A people whose words express adoration to God, that's praise, dependence on God, that's prayer, and humility toward one another, that's confession. Let's read verses 13 to 18 and looking at these three kinds of righteous words. Hear the word of the Lord from verse 13. Is anyone among you... Suffering, 
Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, and we would receive it with joyful hearts, knowing that you have inspired all of it, cause it to bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the letter of James is drawing to a close. And he is ending on a note that is similar to the way he began. Uh, The letter opened with suffering and a call to faith-filled prayer. And the letter is closing with a call, uh, with with suffering and a call to faith-filled prayer. We also find a call to praise and a call to confession, both of which complement the praying life of the community, okay? Praise is the proper response to answered prayer, and confession of sin turns into the prayers of of the people. But let's get more specific here. Let's look first at praise, expressing adoration to God. Praise, expressing adoration to God. The second half of verse 13 says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And you may read this, you know, in light of the... He just mentioned this, this other one that's suffering. Now he's mentioned this one cheerful. And it may seem out of place that James would place the cheerful one alongside the suffering one. But I think James 1, 2 helps us make sense of what he's saying. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, he said there, Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet various kinds of trials. Why? We went on to talk about because steadfastness through trial makes us more and more like Jesus. Complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. That kind of perspective only comes through prayer. Which is what James goes on to talk about in chapter 1 verses 5 to 8. Crying out to God for for wisdom amidst this suffering. I need wisdom, God, in this suffering. I need the Spirit's eyes to see how this suffering and this illness and and, and this car accident and this financial loss and this headache, how it counts for Jesus Christ. If I am truly to count it all joy. Now with that in mind, go back to chapter 5 by pointing to the cheerful one in chapter 5 We shouldn't think that the cheerfulness is because everything is just hunky-dory and all of life is just smooth sailing. 
The point is that James expects God to answer their prayers for this joy producing wisdom in the midst of their suffering. He expects God to cheer their soul with the hope of his word even in the face of trial. The same idea appears in Acts 27 when when Paul is on a ship with with a bunch of prisoners and a great storm is tossing them around. They have to jettison their cargo and they've all lost hope. This is not a good situation. And in the midst of this uh, situation, based on God's word to Paul, Paul tells the, the crew on the ship, take heart or be cheerful. Why? Because God was going to fulfill his word to Paul. Joy is possible amidst suffering because God is faithful to his word. And one of the words he has spoken to us in James is that he will use our sufferings to make us more like Jesus. That's a really good thing and an awesome blessing. And when he does do this and your heart is cheerful in Jesus through trial, we give him praise. It's all of grace. This word for praise, it's used over, uh, uh, all over the psalm. Sometimes it occurs after rehearsing uh, the Lord's character, His goodness, His, his steadfast love, uh, His righteousness. Uh, but most often it occurs after recounting the Lord's deeds of deliverance in the midst of suffering. Okay, the psalmist remembers, he's reflecting on, so we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves, he's reflecting on the good saving acts of the Lord till his heart is glad in the Lord and expresses itself in praise to the Lord. Okay, and he's, he's so cheered by the Lord's saving deliverance that, that he's inviting the whole assembly to join him in praise and sometimes even extending that invitation to all the nations to join him in praising the Lord. Incredibly, the gospel spreads among all nations for this very purpose, which you guys talked about last week in Romans 15, verse 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written... Therefore, I will praise you. Same word that James uses. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Jesus died not just to make praise possible for the nations, but to secure praise from the nations. Ephesians 5.19 then says that praise is the rhythm of the church's life as God is gathering the nations into a people like you guys right here. Ephesians 5.19 says, Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. Same word James uses. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. James joins the rest of Scripture's choir. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This is how Paul and Silas can sing in prison. God has cheered their heart with his word. A problem that some of us may have is that we pray like crazy when we're suffering, but we forget God once we're cheerful. We cry and cry to him for help. He gives it, and then we're done with God. 
But our cheerfulness is just as much an occasion for drawing near to God in praise. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above. That leads us both to ask and to adore. Because it's all coming from Him. Our cheerfulness remains incomplete if it doesn't adore the one who gives it. Whatever comes to us by the grace of God is for the purpose of expressing praise to the glory of God. James also speaks to prayer here, expressing dependence on God. There's a bit of of progression uh, to the layout here. He starts with the the individual praying through suffering. Uh, Then he includes the elders praying for a sick one. And, And then he broadens it even further to the whole church praying for one another. So for starters, let's, let's look at the, the individual who is suffering. He, he, he must pray. She must pray. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now we've seen throughout this letter that your suffering might be due to persecution for the gospel's sake. Uh, it, it may be related to the, the devil's temptation of you. Uh, Maybe it's the result of other people mistreating you, like the rich were mistreating the poor here. Uh, Maybe your your suffering is like Job's, and it includes great and sudden loss, maybe long-term illness. James mentions all these types of suffering, various trials, he calls them in chapter 1, verse 2. Whatever suffering we may be facing... We need the grace of God if we're going to glorify Him in our suffering. Just getting through our suffering is not the point. We want our lives to bear witness to the world that Jesus is worthy of our obedience and worthy of our praise even as we walk through suffering. But even more, our God is a God who walks with us through suffering. He's a God who's not only available in suffering, He's a God who sympathizes with our weaknesses in suffering because God the Son entered our suffering. He is also generous to help those that He purchased with His Son's blood. And then that's good because we need a lot of help in in suffering. We need godly wisdom in suffering to to be patient and sort through the various things coming at us. We we need mercy in our suffering to keep from biting other people's heads off in our anger. We need words that will make for peace with our enemies. We need patient resolve to remain obedient to Jesus under the pressure we're facing. And on we could go. But none of these things will come to us in our suffering unless we're praying. Prayer is the means by which we tap into God's wisdom and strength and power and joy to endure suffering rightly. Of course, God is able to do for us far beyond anything we can ask or think. But He still chooses to work through prayer, through through our dependence on Him. Because it's the giver who gets the glory. And we get the satisfaction of walking with him through prayer. Even in our suffering. 
One of God's purposes in our suffering is that we draw nearer to Him in prayer. Uh, He will often strip from us our earthly comforts and health and wealth that we might find our all in Him. That we might say with Psalm 73, you know, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. The point is that we might know more of Him and might have more of Him in our suffering. But that must come through prayer. God saved you to relate to Him. He's a God who wants to give His children more and more grace. But that comes through asking for it. God causes our, our endurance in suffering, not apart from our praying, but through our praying. What loss burdens you right now? What relationship is broken and causing you grief? Is there a darkness that just won't seem to lift? Are you or a friend of yours experiencing persecution? It is God, this is his word, it is God who says to you, let him pray. Let her pray. God is near. God has not abandoned you. God wants you to cry to him. Sometimes we get so focused on the suffering itself, or we get so focused on ourselves in the suffering, that we lose sight of a God who offers himself to us in Jesus In Christ, you have been given access to a generous Father who listens to your cries. He has opened the way. He will give us all we need. If He has taken care of our biggest problem, namely sin, which separates us from Him, He can take care of everything else. James moves next to including others in the prayers. He mentions a sick individual calling for the elders. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. People have taken this anointing in different ways. One view says the oil must have served a medicinal purpose. But the particular word behind anoint never occurs within a context that suggests medicinal purpose. It's also very telling that other ways to express the use of oil for medicinal purposes was available to James, but he doesn't use them. And if oil was such a common medical remedy, why not just apply it yourself? It's not as if the the elder's application has any special power. Another view is that of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, They use this passage to support uh, what they call holy unction, an an actual sacrament for the person dying. The priest applying the oil somehow imparts grace and remits sins to prepare the person for death. That view not only has so much deeper problems with with how sins are, in fact, forgiven, but but it's totally out of step with the purpose of the prayer that's mentioned here. The purpose is for healing the sick for further life on earth. 
not to prepare them for death. What then shall we say it is? Uh, I'll give you our take as elders here at Redeemer, the most common reference to anointing with oil throughout Scripture, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is to a symbolic consecration. Okay, that is to say, applying the oil is a visible act of the elders to symbolize that an individual is being set apart or consecrated uh, to God for a special prayer and time of, of praying for their healing. You know, so don't freak out if you're bedridden and we show up with some oil in our hands, all right? We're not going to bust out the snakes and, and incense next. We're simply setting you apart for a special time of prayer in hopes that God will, will heal. Okay, that's what he says next in verse 15. In the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What should we make of this, this prayer of faith? We have to be careful, don't we? Because some people have used passages like this one to say that if a person isn't healed, it's because of their lack of faith. So the burdened sick person has called people to, to, to pray for them, and then they just heap more burdens on the sick person when they're not healed. They burden the sick with guilt that ought not to be. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that God responds to our prayers based not on the amount of faith we have, but on whether true faith exists at all. Power isn't in the amount of of faith when we pray, it's in the object of faith when we pray, Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of big faith, but a matter of true faith that expects God to work and patiently accepts His will above all. Now, having said that, there are occasions when God grants a measure of faith or confidence that it is His will to heal a person. And that's what I take it to mean here. A, a parallel to this would be the gift of faith that 1 Corinthians 12, 9 talks about. Not just any, like the faith that saves, but something in addition and a gift and above that. In one sense, this prayer of faith is like all other prayer in that faith always patiently submits to the will of God above all. We saw that with prayer in chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. It just so happens in this case that God's will is to heal the person and God makes one or more of the elders confident that he'll do so. In that sense, it differs from other prayer in that there's a greater level of God-given assurance that God will perform the healing. It says the prayer of faith will save, not may save the one who is sick, it will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up because it's in line with what God wants to do in that particular instance. That doesn't mean the elders won't come pray for you without this extra measure of faith. For one, God may not grant it until we're praying for you. But also, the point is that we come and pray for the Lord to heal, patiently waiting for Him to work as He pleases. Okay, We don't come in demanding 
how he must act in this situation. Faith patiently accepts the will of God. He may choose to heal. He may not. Sometimes Paul healed people. Other times Paul left his friends sick. At one point, God wouldn't even remove Paul's ailment. I mean, they're they're taking napkins from this apostle and carrying them to the sick and they're being healed. And he can't, and he prays three times for him to be healed. And he and the Lord says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. If God chooses not to heal, we must trust his word that my grace is sufficient for you. Hope is never in the healing, but in the God who may choose to heal or not to heal, but who always chooses what is for our good and for his glory. Now, speaking of our good and his glory, there are chances that such healing comes in connection with the confession of sin. Okay, one of James' points for the elders coming is that God may be using the sickness to discipline one of his children for sin. Okay, that's not to say, I hope you hear me, this is a big qualification here. That's not to say that we should make a direct correlation and say that all sickness must be disciplined for some specific sin that we're in. The book of Job and the man born blind in John 9 are great examples of why we cannot go there as a church. But it's also true that sometimes, sometimes the Lord will use sickness to discipline us for specific sins. And that's very clear from the Lord's Supper situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. Some of them are getting sick, even dying for treating each other so poorly while they're coming to the table. We also see it in the warning that Jesus gives to the church in Revelation 2, uh, verse 22, that, that he would throw them onto a sickbed if they refused to repent from their idolatry. So sickness will oftentimes, it will oftentimes humble us before the Lord in ways we haven't been humble when we're healthy. We're lying in bed with such pain and, and discomfort that we cry to the Lord for help. We have time to reflect on our lives in more serious ways. And it may be that the Lord uses the occasion to expose that this sickness is a warning from the Lord, a discipline to turn you away from a particular sin. It may be that the sickness isn't connected to any particular sin at all. It's just afforded you the opportunity to evaluate your life more closely. You've discovered things that are displeasing to Christ and and you wish they weren't there any longer. Maybe it's just the simple reminder that your body is broken and the whole world is wrought with disease because of one sin. And that sobers you about the destructive nature of your own sin. The point is that the elder's ministry to the individual does not cease with the prayer for healing. They must also give due attention to the spiritual care of the saint. And the saint is also to remember that the elders have been given to them as a gift for both the prayer for healing and the confession of sin and the reassurance of God's mercies in such time. 
It may not be that the elders need to hear every specific sin that you want to confess. Only that they are present to reassure you of God's gracious promises of forgiveness and restoration in Christ when you need them most. You need to know this. We, we want to pray for you when you're sick like this. I mean, yes, go to the doctor as well and give thanks to God for modern medicine. This passage is not meant to minimize God's other good gifts. But we enjoy coming alongside you in this way. We've prayed for people numerous times in this way. And God has chosen to heal in only a couple of instances. Why some and not others? I don't know. Perhaps to keep us from becoming puffed up. But always for reasons that are for our good and for His glory. Sometimes our prayers haven't led to physical healing. But as we're praying, something in the prayer, something one of the elders says in the prayer, brings spiritual healing. Further confidence in the gospel. We're not worthy, but we're glad to participate in times like this. So please call on us. We also need to remember this. We're not the only ones that you can call on. Everybody just look around the room. Look around the room. It's not weird. Look around the room at each other. You can call on all of these brothers and sisters as well. It's the, it's the elder's relationship to the sick individual that then leads James to a much broader application to the whole church. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the whole church is praying for each other now. The mutual confession of sin leads to the mutual prayers of the people. And the church walking, in this, walking this way should recognize the power of their prayers to change people and heal people. Look, look at the way he illustrates it with Elijah. The point isn't that Elijah was some superstar prophet that had incredible power. Nope, he was a guy like us, James says. I mean, he could boldly call on God at Mount Carmel one day and fire comes down from heaven. He wins the day. And then the next day he runs away scared from Jezebel and her threats. He was a man with a nature like ours, James says. He had his ups and his downs, his strong and his weak moments. He was a plain man, but he served a great God. Elijah couldn't control the skies, but he knew his God could. And on top of that, God had revealed to Elijah. If you go back and read the story, you see, uh, especially the, 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 when the rains come, the Lord reveals to Elijah in 1 Kings 18, verse 1, that he was going to do it. So God had revealed to Elijah that he would do these things. Elijah then prayed according to God's will. His faith accepted God's will above all, and the Lord answered his prayers. God shut up the skies for three years and then unleashed the rains at Elijah's request. The point is that God will work in amazing ways through our prayers too. When you pray, patiently waiting for his will to be done. 
What kinds of prayers do you pray for each other? Or our church? What, what do you, I mean, do, do you pray for each other's healing? And that God be glorified through the healing, perhaps? Do you pray for each other's strength and spiritual well-being if God does not grant healing? Do you pray for each other to patiently accept the Lord's will and to overcome temptation to sin? After all, these prayers are the result of someone's confession of sin. Make praying for one another part of the rhythm of your life. Take some of the prayers from the Bible and pray them regularly for each other. Write down the names of of our members. Uh, One thing you can do is print out the membership directory. It's online, on the city, in the Redeemer Church group. Quick links. Find it. Print it out. And then use it to pray through on a regular basis. When someone confesses their sins, you know, don't prosecute them. Pray for them. God took care of their sins on the cross. Cry out to God on their behalf and assure each other of God's forgiveness in Christ. So we've looked at praise, different kinds of prayer. Both are the result of gospel, of the gospel making people new. Now finally I want to point to it. Confession, expressing humility toward one another. Look again at the beginning of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Let's set this passage within the context of, of the people James has been talking to. He's called them out for getting angry with each other. He has called them out, called out the rich in particular, for mistreating the poor. He's called them out for cursing each other and for quarreling and fighting and grumbling against one another. Now, at the end of the letter, he's saying, you, all the people I've been addressing, specifically, you get up from your seat And you go to your brother or to your sister and confess your sin to the one you've been sinning sinning against. Perhaps they've sinned against the whole church with their actions. And in that case, it would be appropriate to confess to the whole church. Whatever the case, he's calling them to mutual confession, to humble themselves before each other and admit their wrongdoing. I remember gathering with a handful of people in, in Turkey. Uh, it was in somebody's home. We're all sitting very closely together around the couches and the chairs. And uh, the pastor was teaching on Colossians 3. Uh, and he comes to the part in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and, and do not be harsh with them. And after explaining the, the passage, he, he, he quite pointedly just looks at one of the couples in our midst. And he corrects the husband for the way he spoke earlier to his wife in the kitchen about being harsh with her. And everybody's sitting around the room listening to this. But without hesitation, the husband confessed his sin to his wife, and they reconciled on the spot. It was beautiful and real fellowship. 
I wonder if our times together wouldn't benefit from some real heart-to-heart confession with one another. We're not here just to bump along because this is what Christians do on Sunday. Just sing some songs and go home unaffected. When the Word of God convicts us about the way we've been treating others, we must go to them and confess our sins. I mean, this gathering every Sunday morning is a great opportunity. Maybe you do it today before we take the Lord's Supper. Confession and reconciliation is not an interruption to this service. It ought to be one of the fruits of this service together. I remember about seven years ago approaching a sister myself here during one of the songs. I had lied to her about something. And she sat down and listened to my confession and then forgave me. And I will tell you, this supper never tasted sweeter. Listen, this supper is a declaration that Jesus Christ alone is our righteousness. That's what we celebrate in the supper. All our sins went on Him at the cross, and all of His righteousness comes to us by faith alone. That frees you to walk in integrity before each other. That frees us to confess our sins to one another. We don't hide our sins. We don't try to self-justify. Well, he deserved it. Well, I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't done that. Well, nobody's perfect. Oh, it wasn't that bad. All of these kinds of self-justifying remarks... James 5.16 is a picture of a church walking in humility toward each other, admitting their wrongs and taking them before the Lord together. Our right standing in Christ liberates us to confess and be vulnerable. God has already made our sin a public spectacle by placing them on His Son and condemning them before the world. Confession is simply agreeing out loud of what God thinks of our sin. At the same time, the cross is where God declares us forgiven and accepted with Him. If we're accepted with God, who can bring a charge against us? Romans 8, right? Who cares what people think of you if the God of the universe has said over you, forgiven, right? Who cares if I have to get up and make it awkward in the service? Who cares if I have to say something to my brother at care group? If God says, forgiven, that seals the deal. That will open your mouth in praise. That has opened us a way to pray. And that makes it possible to confess The gospel creates a people whose words express adoration to God, dependence on God, and humility toward each other. So, before we take the supper, why don't we use the next few moments as a time of confession? If you need to reconcile with others in this body, do so and pray for one another. If you need to confess to God, 
do so. He stands ready to forgive his children. And if you don't yet know the Lord, but want to, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And we go to the Lord in prayer.